Gentlemen, ladies, cats. Um, welcome to uh, our weekly shear. And it does mean weekly. Well, let me. If again it's doing the same stupid thing, I don't know why. Pardon my French. Okay, let's add him. Why did that happen? Oh, you're here still. Okay, good. Okay, not a problem. Pashas Baha Alischo. Middle of month of Sivan. The month of Matantara. The third month. As we know, the third month is the third thing of the nation divided in three. Kray and Levi and Yisrael. The Tera, again the concept of Tera Nevi'im, Iksuvim, etc. Bash Ba'alitzcha is a very, very full Pash, actually. Although it only has five mitzvahs, three mitzvahs Hasei and two mitzvahs Leisasei, three positive and two negative. But the Pash itself is very, very full in that there are many, many different things that go on in this Pasha. Something's going wrong here. Oh. Hi, good evening. Welcome aboard. Okay. I have to get the latest version of Skype also, it seems. Or is that you? I don't know who that goes to. I give up. Okay. In Pash Baalitzcha, starts off, Baalitzcha has the lighting of the Meneira, as we spoke last week. It's in conjunction with the end of the Nasi, of the Nesim, each Nasi of each Shevet bringing Karbanes for the dedication of the Mishkan, of the, of the, of the Mishkan. And because each Shevet brought, therefore, each Nazi brought, therefore Aaron Akayin was to bring as well. Being that Aaron Akayin is the she- is the one that represents Baha'u'llah, we'd like to let, give a shout out, we'd like to dedicate the Shir to the Schus of a young child, Tamar Baskeren, Shavrafu Shalema. All those here, all those listening, and all those that will listen, show you join in our prayers for her immediate refuah. It's, it's quite a severe issue for this little one-year-old child. Um, oh, gosh. Divine Providence always chases us. 
I am signed in. Hold on, Adam. And Says here, download hasn't started. Try again. Oh, started. Okay. trying again over here. So Divine Providence has it that whenever you have to say something or you're looking for a message that's not been in your repertoire before and all of a sudden you'll get something at the right time in the right place. Yesterday, last night I got a text message. People tend to send these very, very long, awkward text messages. This actually came in a BlackBerry message. A voyaging ship was wrecked during a storm at sea. Only two of the men on it were able to swim to a small desert-like island. Two survivors, not knowing what else to do, agreed they had no other recourse but to pray to God. However, to find out whose prayer was more powerful, they agreed to divide the territory between them and stay on the opposite sides of the island. They lost everybody. First thing they prayed for was food. Oh wait, we're getting back here now. Okay, let's see. No, it's not working. This thing is demented. There we go. I don't know. I got one day this this Skype is going to drive me to the limit. Okay, we just uploaded it again. We downloaded a new improved Skype, and it just xed everybody out instead of keeping it. Around. Anyway, the first thing they prayed for was food. Two people on an island, desert, desert island, stranded because of a shipwreck, of course. And they decided they're going to go to opposite sides of the island and pray to God. First thing they prayed for was food. The reason they went to the opposite sides to see whose prayers are actually going to be answered. 
Um, so first they prayed for his food. Next morning, first man saw a fruit-bearing tree on his side of the land. And was able to eat its fruit. So the food was there. His prayers were answered. The other man's parcel of land remained barren. After a week, the first man was lonely and decided to pray for a wife. The next day, there was a woman who swam to his side of the island, and they married. On the other side of the island, of course, nothing. So the first man prayed for a house, clothes, and more food. Next day, like magic, all of these were given to him. However, the second man still had nothing. Finally, the first man realized that the prayers are being answered. Let's do it right. And he prayed for a ship. So he and his wife could leave the island. In the morning, he found a ship docked at his side of the island. First man boarded the ship with his wife and decided to leave the second man on the island. He considered the other man unworthy to receive God's blessings, since none of his prayers had been answered. As the ship was about to leave, the first man heard a voice from heaven, a booming voice. Why are you leaving your companion on the island? My blessings are mine alone, this man answers, since I was the one who prayed for them, and I was answered. His prayers were all unanswered. So he does not deserve anything, the man said. And as he was about to float away, the Almighty says to him, You are mistaken. He had only one prayer, which I answered. If not for that, you would not have received any of my blessings. Tell me, the first man asked the voice, What did he pray for that I should owe him anything? He prayed, that all your prayers should be answered. And therefore, since he prayed that your prayers should be answered, your prayers were actually answered. So don't think you have any value on your own. We have to always realize there are others, and it's because of the life of others, that we sometimes have to come on to and to pray for. Rabbi we spoke that this week's Pasha begins when we light the menorah, the candle, the job was done by whom? Technically it was done by the Kain Gadol. The Pasuk says, Ner, in Mishlei, Shleim HaMelech writes, Ner Nishmas Adam, the candle of God, is the soul of the person. Each and every person. Why is it a candle? Each and every soul, each and every Jewish soul, lights up the light of God. There are those, though, from the Jews, that the light of their souls don't necessarily light up anybody else. It remains hidden within them, covered with many different obstacles. This is the service, this is what Aaron Akain, the Kain Godel, did. 
Lahalois to lift up Ner Tamid. And to reveal each and every one of these candles. And the seven candles represent the seven types of Nishamas. When we say Ner Havaya, the Ner of the soul, the candle of God, of the Nishama, he had to hold the fire there until the candle, till the, ro- the candle lit and the flame rose on its own. However, lighting of the Mineta can be done by a regular person, a regular Jew. It doesn't have to be done by a Kohen Gadol. And the proof, we see the story of Hanukkah. It says that they lit the candles with Chatzreis Kachecha. How could it be in the courtyard? The answer is because it could be lit by a regular Jew as well, but he could not enter the in the sanctuary, and therefore, for in order to, for the Jew to light it, they would have to bring the menorah out to him. So, a person, in essence, cannot say, should not say, that only Aaron is commanded to light; that this whole command is only to Aaron Akayin. And only he has to see to it that the candle and the flame rises up. But lighting of the soul of a Jew, each and every person, even a stranger, is commanded to see to it that it lights up. <coughs> and therefore the Mishnah tells us in Pirkei Avais, Hevei shal Arain, we have to be from the students of Arain, what was Aaron's attributes? Ayhev Shalim, Redev Shalim, Ayhev Sabriyas and Mekarvan Latera. He loved peace, so pursued peace, loved creations and brought them closer to Torah. Sigizan. The obligation of each and every Jew is to bring closer, to bring closer one to the light of their soul. And to take away what is hidden, to take away and to bring it out from its shell, from within. <laughs> so you know. Thank you. What does it mean when the leader of the nation, the Kayan Gadol, is obligated to see to it that each and every soul is lit up. We told this story today. We just told this story now by the oil. Just for the record, anyone who wants to send in email letters tomorrow or meet us tomorrow by the oil at 8 o'clock, we got a bunch of guys getting together by the Ohel 8 o'clock tomorrow and pray. Yeah. Bring your boss, bring whoever else wants to come pray for this child. We'll dedicate the evening as well. Today they're doing something for the child. There? Oh. Okay. 
we wanted to go bowling, but it wasn't exciting, it was too expensive, we didn't have money, so we decided to go to the Ohel, we'll hang out there, it's cheaper. <laughs> and if we get lucky, they'll put out chocolate chip cookies, and we'll even have a great time. Uh-huh. Oh, by the way, Mazel Tov in Atlanta, Georgia, to Rabbi Nu, Rabbi Nu's daughter became a Kala. Unaware? Okay. Rabbi Nu in Atlanta, Georgia, his daughter became a Kala to... Rabbi Mintz from California, Bel Air, California, son. You see if there's any cold seltzer before I pass out there. See if there's any left. In Brazil, there was a school, a yeshiva actually, for children that don't come from religious families. They are not yet religious families. They'll become. They weren't yet. There's quite a large school, and it had nothing to do, it was not affiliated with Chabad actually, it was run by a fellow who was a Munkach Chassid, and one day, he is confronted, there's ice cubes in the freezer, he's confronted by a couple, a set of parents. The couple is sitting there, they asked the visitor, they asked the appointment, and he's sitting with the couple, and the couple says, we have a problem. Okay, let's talk. And as they're trying to talk, the wife bursts out crying. She says, their daughter is engaged to marry a non-Jew. They don't know what to do. She's engaged and she's dead set to marry a non-Jewish boy. The rabbi heard them out. At this point the husband's also crying, the father and the mother are both crying. And he asks for the phone number of the daughter. And he calls her up. And she says, she was very amicable. Sure, Rabbi, come on over. The Rabbi came over to her house. Spent three hours trying to convince her, trying to explain to her the problems, the dangers, destruction. of intermarriage. After three hours, the rabbi got nowhere. And the girl said, okay, rabbi, thank you for coming. But you got nothing to tell me, you have nothing to sell me. Go on your way, rabbi. Thank you for coming. And this very dejected, downtrodden rabbi leaves the house. And he is devastated. What will he tell the parents?
Finally, he breaks the news to the parents that he did not succeed. But neither he, of course, nor the parents were very happy with that. And the rabbi is sitting in his study, devastated over what was happening. And it occurred to him that the only reason, although he's a Munkachachasa, the only reason he's in Brazil is because he had gone to the Lubavitch Rebbe and the Lubavitch Rebbe told him to go. So he said, I may as well call the Rebbe and maybe the Lubavitch Rebbe can help me out. He called up 770 Rabbi Chadikov, the Rebbe's personal secretary, answered. And he told Rabbi Chadikov the issue, what the problem was. Chadikov told him to wait, hold the line. A few minutes later, Rabbi Chadikov came back to the phone and told him, tell the girl, Tell the girl that there's a rabbi in New York who doesn't sleep at night because she's marrying an Anjou. So Rabbi Chadikov told him. He asked Rabbi Chadikov who is the rabbi in Brooklyn not sleeping at night because this girl is marrying a guy? And all of a sudden he hears on the other line an extension, the Rebbe himself, and the Rebbe says, Me, Menachem Schneerson. This uh, spooked out the fellow enough. The Rebbe himself is telling him that he's not sleeping at night Excuse me. He calls up the girl and he says, I'd like to meet with you in your parents' house. I have one more thing I just want to tell you. One thing. And the girl agrees. She comes to the house. And he tells her, I have a message from a rabbi in New York who says you know him. And he says he does not sleep at night. Because you are marrying an Anjou. The girl looked at the rabbi and says, You're off your mind. You're nuts. Rabbi, this is what you called me here for? I let you speak to me for three hours. With no problem. And now you're going to throw this at my face. What are you talking about? What rabbi? I know a rabbi in Brooklyn, New York. I don't know any rabbis in New York. I don't know what you're talking about. You came here to make fun of me. Just leave me alone. I had some respect for you. Till now, it's over. I, I don't even want to hear from you again. Now, if I tell you to do something, and you're not in the mood of doing it, and for some reason you don't do it, you're very likely to get away with it. 
if I catch you purposely not doing it, I might, you know, force you to do it. We have our ways. But if you get a message from the Rebbe to do something, you get sent on a, as an emissary from the Rebbe, you don't renege on that. And that's if the secretariat calls you and tells you you have to do this, the Rebbe said do this. But if the Rebbe gets on the phone and tells you to tell this girl and to be his messenger, the guy knew he could not give up. He'd never be able to ask the Rebbe anything again if he didn't succeed. He tells her, wait a minute, I'll show you him. And he asked the parents quickly, find me a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they started rummaging through and they found some kind of publication that they got from Chabad. In it was a picture of the Rebbe. And they opened it up and they said, here, here, here you have it. And he took it and he said to the girl, look, look. And the girl said, leave me alone. And suddenly the girl looks at the magazine and she sees <coughs> the Rebbe. And she starts to cry. And she says, he, he, who is he? And the rabbi explains, this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She says, he's not sleeping at night. She says, how do you know he's not sleeping at night? She goes, he comes to my dream every single night and doesn't let me off until I'm going to tell him I'm not going to marry this guy. So I know he's not sleeping at night. Anyway, a week or so later, the wedding got postponed, and then the wedding got pushed off further, and then the wedding got cancelled. Because the Rebbe did not sleep at night until this happened. Your book is in my car. You're welcome. (laughs) He does the talk, you do the walk. (laughs) Baha'u'llah. To light a candle, to kindle a candle that everyone should stay hot, it should stay lit. The flame should rise and not to leave, not to neglect this flame until it actually is risen. This is the job of each and every Jew. It's not only the job of Nasi Yisrael, not only the job of a Kayin Gadol, but the job of each and every one of us to light the candle of each and every soul. Amongst the many things discussed in this week's Pasha, we find one of the punishments that Moshe Rabbeinu receives. Moshe Rabbeinu had expressed himself differently than he should have. We know the end of the Pasha tells us that Moshe was the most humble person of everyone. But yet, with all his humbleness, we see that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke different things, said different things, different ways, amongst which Moshe Rabbeinu says, any questions that you might have, you should bring to me. I don't know what's going on here. Any question you have, you should bring to me, says Moshe Rabbeinu. 
And to this the Almighty said, to this the Almighty said, who do you think you are? And therefore when it comes to today's parsha, Meisha Rabbeinu forgets Ehalacha. What law did he forget? Vayedaber Hashem Meisha Rashona Hashenis Bachedish Harishen and the Jews were told to do the, the carbon Pesach. Then came the next month and came to him some people crying. Loma Nigora, Temei Mayul Nefesh. We were Tamei. We were impure when everyone was bringing the carbon Pesach. And we didn't manage to bring it. Now we want the opportunity as well. And Moshe tells them, Imdu, stand here and listen to what God will say. Moshe did not remember what the answer was. Excuse me. To which the new halacha in the Torah brought down, the Almighty commands Pesach Sheni. A wonderful holiday for many reasons. Firstly, it has a tremendous lesson. The lesson being, it's never too late. Sometimes, we do something, and we feel it's done, and we can't go back on it. And sometimes that is, hap- that is the case. Sometimes there are certain averes that we do that we can't retract. But on the majority, it's never too late. Everything, tshuva, repentance is always accepted. And therefore, Pesach Sheni is the mentor, the lesson for just this law, teaching us how it's never too late. You didn't do it the first month, you could do it the second. Rashi tells us, this parsha was not said until the month of Ir. Why does the Torah not start with this parsha? And Rashi says, Abnei Shugnusan Yisrael, it is an embarrassment to the Jewish nation. Shekol arbayim shana shayisol b'midbar. Forty years the Jews were in the desert. Le'yekrivu ala Pesach zubavad. They only brought carbon Pesach once. How embarrassing! Why is that? So now you ask the question. What was wrong with them? Why didn't they? And the answer is simple. Because the first Pesach they were commanded to bring it, and that was it. They weren't told again to bring it until they came into Israel. So I do it So in that case, there was no chayv. They were not obligated. So 
So they are not chayiv to bring it only the first time. What's embarrassment? What was so embarrassing to the Jewish nation? They didn't have to bring it. Perhaps you can say that this whole Pasha of Lamini Gara was spoken to people that were Tmeyim the Nefesh. They were Tmeyim the Nefesh, they were carrying a dead body. Some say they took out another of an Avihu, some say they were carrying the bones of Yosef. And therefore they were not able to be Makar of Karim Pesach on the first time. And they came crying to the Almighty God, Lamanigara, why are we worse than anyone else? We are not culpable, we are not at fault. Why should we not have the opportunity, the chance to be makir of the Karim Pesach? And Hashem agrees, and He gave them Pesach Sheni. That case, the question stands. If a minority of people stood up and it hurt them, it pained them, they didn't have the carbon Pesach. And they cried out, and they were granted a mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. So if the entire Jewish nation would have said after the first year, Pesach is again upon us, why are we not being allowed to bring the carbon Pesach again? The Almighty would have said, you're right, bring it again. But the nation did not cry out and say, where is our carbon Pesach? <laughs> the nation did not cry out and say, where is my mitzvah? This is the embarrassment of the Jewish nation. They didn't cry and beg to get a mitzvah that they should have done. I've told this story many times. There was a Jew living in a forest. Barely eked out a living. As many Jews do. Family of children. There was always a, a piece of bread that they found, some water, some, something. The children had what to eat. Everything. Very, very, very... The poverty level was terrible. But they didn't know any different, they didn't know any better, they didn't ask for any more, they were fine. Ibzalman had traveled once to the big city, and the big city had a visit. The holy Balshem HaKadosh, the Balshem Tov, came to visit the city. And this Ibzalman saw from the distance, he saw what the face, the holy face, of the Baal Shem HaKadosh. Zalman sitting in the house, Thursday afternoon, and he hears a wagon pull up. A wagon pulls up to his house, and off the wagon comes Talmidim of Baal Shem Tov and the Baal Shem Tov himself. We are here for Thursday night. Immediately he went and he grabbed his chalif, his knife, and he sharpened it and he told the Hashem to check it. He went out and he slaughtered his cow, his only cow, and he koshered the meat so that there'd be meat for the people. 
and they found some flour, some bread. Then he ran the next morning, and the whole night long, the Chassidim and the Vashemtiv, the Vashemtiv spoke, and the Chassidim fabrained, and they sat, and they sang, and they danced. It was a beautiful, beautiful, inspiring night. Friday morning, they all went to the river, to the mikveh, they davened afterwards, and it, things tardy, they sat down, lay down to rest a little bit, and it got late, and the Vashemtiv said, we can't go on, we're going to stay here for Shabbos. What an honor. Immediately he took his wagon, he took his horse, his sheep, his chicken, whatever he had. He ran to town, he pawned it all off. Meat that he had, he bought some fish, he bought some challah, bread, flour. He came back and Shabbos was ready. It was a magnificent Shabbos. Hashem spoke terror Friday night. Shabbos day, Shalashudas. For Saturday night from Lava Malka, they even had the leftovers. Sunday morning, the Bashemtov needed to have for his Hasidim breakfast. Zalman said, I have just one little face, sardine or herring, whatever. That's fine, they cut it up, and the Chassidim ate it. And the Bashem said, anything else to eat? They said, no. Thank you very much. Shalom. The Chassidim pack up and they leave. Zalman was very inspired. How much more exciting could it be to have the Bashem HaKadosh himself visit Man cannot live on spirituality. Man needs something to eat. They need sustenance. And the children needed food. The Mlav Malka was already meager. And Sunday morning the food was even less. There was practically nothing. Sunday afternoon the children were crying and starving. Children were begging and pleading for food. There was nothing to sell. There was nothing to... He was empty, devoid... Zalman went out to the back of his house and he threw himself on the ground and began to cry and cried and begged and pleaded with the Almighty God. I did a mitzvah, he said. It was the Baal Shem Tov and his Talmidim. Did that matter? Yeah. yeah now I have nothing. If I die of hunger, I'm, I'm fine. But the kindelach, the poor little children, what are they fault? What's their fault? Why should they suffer? And as he's lying there in the mud, crying, he hears again a wagon pulling up. He gets up out of the mud, he comes running to the front of his house. These two very well-dressed men come out with a servant. Servants carrying a box. Oh, you must be the homeowner. He says, yeah. We saw there's a mezuzah here. We wanted to stop in. He says, you're welcome to stop in, but I haven't got a morsel of food to give you. He said, food? We have food. We have plenty of food. Come, we have food for us. We have food for you. Food for your family. They came inside, turned on the ovens, 
everything is 100% kosher, they said. And everybody sat and ate. After everything was done, they finished eating. The two guests were getting ready to leave. And they turned to the Zalman and they said, You know, Zalman, you seem to be an intelligent fellow. Maybe do us a favor. He said, Sure. Speak to me. We're partners in the business for many years. And we decided it's time to dissolve the business. We're parting our ways. We are traveling now, actually, to a distant town where there's a lot of Tamil Chachamim, a lot of geniuses, a lot of big, smart rabbis, to find out how we do this properly, how we divide this properly. According to Torah, we don't want to, God forbid, steal from one another. So we want to know how to do this right. Maybe you hear out our story, hear out our business, and help us divide it. If you can help us divide it, we'll pay you for it, and you'll save us days of travel. No, Davai, let's see. They take out the papers, and they start showing and showing and showing. The whole story was 20,000 ruble. 20,000 ruble? No. It says 20,000 ruble. He says, he makes up each thing. After a half hour, he's explained to them exactly how it's getting divided, and he's got everything clear and down pat. They were ecstatic. They really, he saw he did it right. Everything was done perfectly. Both partners were happy. Zalman was a little flabbergasted. 20,000 rubles. These two guys looked like such big businessmen. The 20,000 rubles, Shatumul. And they turned to him and they told him, we got to tell you. The number you see here is multiplied by a thousand. We wrote it in a tenth. We didn't want the numbers to look too big, so we wrote it in a tenth. But in essence, in a thousandth. In essence, it's not 20,000, it's a thousand times that. And we usually give the fee for a settlement 3%. So you have to get 600,000 ruble or something, I don't know, it gives a number. The divider here is your 20,000. The down payment, and we will send you the rest. <laughs> People picked up, packed off, and left. They left him with this tremendous amount of money and a, a promissory note for the rest of the money. He's not going to uh, lose sleep again over food. But you move. You have to drink from the bottle. <laughs> I offered you only the bottle. This is better. The sprite zero. What sprite zero? The sprite zero. Sprite zero. No. Downstairs in the fridge. That's all he thinks about.
In fact, they do they do have uh, they did have uh, wire transfer. Yeah. Wire. Anyway, a little while later, the Balshemtov and his Tamidim show up again. <coughs> and the Balshemtov comes back, so the Chassid says, Come, now we can eat. I have money, I have food, we'll buy, we'll get. Balshemtov says, I don't need your food. He says, So, what was that all about? He says, Zalman. <laughs> The truth is that in heaven it's decreed that you should be a very wealthy man. However, because you never asked for it, nobody ever sent it to you. God was waiting for you to ask. God was waiting for you to pray for this money. If you pray for it, God sent it. Now that you finally prayed for it, God sent it to you. Mm-hmm. to that story, we've said, we've told before the story of Erev Kippur, of Erev Tishbev, where the Rebbe, by a Fabrengen, Erev Tishbev, in the olden days, people used to travel to the country. what would happen is the wives would be up in the country a whole week and whereas most people they'd go up on Thursday nights or Fridays to spend Shabbos together here if there was a Fabrengen if the Rebbe was going to speak a lot of the people stayed here for Shabbos the men and they'd go up Matzah Shabbos so Matzah Shabbos was Tishabov and the Rebbe Fabrengen that Shabbos afternoon and by a Fabrengen the Rebbe would speak and in between discourses, in between sikhs, the Rebbe would stop and pause and there would be a nigun. The Chassidim would sing a nigun. During the time when the Chassidim would sing the nigun, the Chassidim would also have an opportunity to say the Chaim to the Rebbe. People would get a little kelishkel of wine and you were able to say the Chaim to the Rebbe. You would hold up your kelishkel and the Rebbe would see you and the Rebbe would answer the Chaim with the Bracha. Yes, I know. Most people say the Chaim Tevim the Shalom. We're not going to discuss that today. This one particular Chassid was sitting during an igun, and the Rebbe was staring at him. <coughs> the Rebbe was staring and staring and staring until he finally couldn't take anymore. He picked himself up and he went out of the show. That 770 was quite large. As we said, the summertime, there are not many people. So he was able to come back in from the other side of the show and find another seat. Which he did. What he didn't realize was the Rebbe found him too. And the Rebbe found him again, the Rebbe was staring at him. Finally, he nudged somebody next to him, give me a Chaim, quick. 
And the man gave him a, some wine, and he picked up the cup, and the Rebbe said, Chaim. That night, the fellow went to the country, to the Bangalore, which is the most mind-boggling thing you've ever seen in your life. The fact that people live in three, four, five-bedroom houses in Brooklyn or New York, and they travel to a one-and-a-half-bedroom bungalow, and they squeeze their whole family into this hole. But you also have bears. Okay. Okay, that's it. So how many uh, bedrooms are left already? Yeah, you have all the bears coming in there. Party. <laughs> the coyotes, the chipmunks. Where do you put the cat? Cat goes in there too. Okay. Possums. 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 As long as you call, you're living in the country. Yeah. yeah. You're sharing with all the mosquitoes and the animals and the creatures. Yeah. Actually, I have I have a very interesting. I had a, a screen on one of my windows that broke. <laughs> it's a broken screen, so I take the broken screen, I go to my back porch, and the neighbors have some nice trees hang over my porch, and I sit next to the broken screen Shabbos afternoon, and I let the mosquitoes come through and bite me. I said, ah, oh, I'm in the country. <laughs> I'm fine, I don't need more than that. It's amazing. Anyway, the Rebbe looked at this fellow and said, Chaim, this fellow went up to the country. That next day, his wife was cooking something in the kitchen. Um, with a pressure cooker. Pressure cookers are these pots yeah. that you seal closed and they have a little button on top that lets you know when it's cooking. And he walked by the pressure cooker and either it wasn't closed properly or whatever other explanation you want to get from it, the pressure cooker blew up in his face. They rushed him to the hospital and it was a pretty serious situation. The pressure cooker blows up in someone's face. It's not not. Uh, they wrote to the Rebbe. They immediately wrote to the Rebbe saying that this is what happened to this fellow. And the Rebbe's answer immediately was, if he would have not have said the Chaim, who knows what would have happened to him? So by the Rebbe answering him, the Chaim of the Bracha, the Rebbe blessed him, gave him a Bracha to save him from much worse that God forbid could have happened to him from this pressure cooker. But the Rebbe chased him practically, staring at him and staring at him, even when he moved to another room, another part of the room, so that he would say the Chaim, so that the Rebbe give him a bracha, the Rebbe could say the Chaim of the bracha. This is the Gnai. This is the embarrassment of the Jewish nation. They didn't call out, they didn't cry out and say, Loma Nigara, why am I not getting a carbon Pesach? <coughs> the end of the parasha discusses again the virtues of Moshe Rabbeinu. And as we said, it talks about, it says, Vaish Moshe it's a little drastic. The man Moshe was a very humble person, humble more than any other person which is on the face of the earth. That in itself sounds very, very holy. But what happened was, Moshe Rabbeinu said 
There are many righteous people in the world. There are many tzaddikim. The difference between me and all the other tzaddikim, sakakol, he said, the only reason is the difference, I went up to heaven and spoke to God. But in essence, I'm not any different than any other tzaddik. I have that one benefit that the Abishta gave me, granted me, to come up to speak to him face to face. That doesn't diminish any other tzaddik, and it doesn't make me any greater than any other tzaddik. Al kol He humbled himself in the face of all the people that stayed on the world, that stayed on the earth, that did not go up to heaven to speak to God. So that's why the Torah tells us the extra expression, Al kol the word anav is spelled ayin, nun, yud, vav. However, the Torah writes it ayin, nun, vav. Missing the yud, minus the yud. The numerical value of the word anav, ayin is 70, nun is 50 is 120, and vav is 6 is 126. Each Chumash of the Chamisha Chumshatera of the five books ends with a different word, obviously. Bereshis ends with the word B'Mitzrayim. Shemais ends with the word Ma'asehem. Vayikra ends with the word Sinai. Bamidba with the word Yerechai. And of course, we all know Devarim ends with the word Yisrael. We take the last letter of each one of these words. It's <coughs> Mem, Mem, Yud, Vav, Lamid, which is numerical value is 126. The same 126, Onav Mikol Adam. This is why Onav is written without a Yud. We also discuss the different variations in this parsha, as far as the man is concerned. The man, as we all know, the mana tasted kitzapiches bidvash, like it was dipped in honey, fried in honey. However. There was a complaint. What was the complaint against the Mun? The complaint against the Mun was an interesting one. The Mun came in three stages. It came in three stages as far as location, it came in three stages as far as the actual Mun. The locations, the righteous person found it outside his tent. The average person found it on the outskirts of the machna, of the camp. And the wicked one had to travel to get it. The tzaddik, the righteous one, 
had a ready-made loaf of bread. <coughs> the Bainini, the average person, had had a ready-made dough. He just had to bake it. The wicked person had flour and not even had the stalks and had the actual grains that had to be ground and had to be first processed in order to make it. Who complained about the man, the wicked one? Not his job, not the task, not that he has to prepare it. Why did everybody have to know about it? Why did everybody have to know I'm different than the tzaddik? Not only different, I'm actually a Russia. I'm wicked, and therefore I don't get it at all. I have to go get it from the distance, and not only I have to get it from the distance, but I have to get it in such a form. Basic tells us, rather, you know what, Kisaveil Mechama, when we go out to war, you'll go to war that opposes against you. Who is the one that's opposing against you? Obviously, it's the Hatzar, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And he comes, Dafka, during davening or learning, not to let you with all the different distorting thoughts. How do we get over them? Vaharesim Bachatzeitzeis, the Torah tells us, the long blast of the trumpet. That's how a person, it's a metaphor, to break the Holy Spirit of a person. And dafke b'yem simchaschem utzchaitim bachatzeitzal eseichem vazivche shalmeichem a person should not think that his Yitzhahara only gets over him, only beats him, only can, can conquer him in a time when he's down. But he has to know that the Simcha Betuv Levav, a person can overcome the Yitzhahara. Question that was asked. We believe that Mashiach is coming any day. In every moment, we believe that Mashiach is coming. If Mashiach is coming at any moment, why are we here? Why are we doing anything? We should be preparing for Mashiach on a constant basis. Why do anything physical? Why do anything, any kind of labor, any kind of work? And we learn this from the Holy Tabernacle, the Mishkan. As they traveled in the desert, they had to take apart and reconstruct the Mishkan. There were times where they spent 19 years in some places. They constructed the Mishkan, it sat for 19 years, and they traveled further, they took it apart, they dismantled. And there were times that the Mishkan, that the Holy Shekhinah, only spent one night over the Mishkan. And therefore, they constructed the Mishkan, they constructed the Mishkan and then the next morning they had to take it apart. This was hundreds of people putting together and taking this apart. 
<laughs> Hundreds of people had to do this. So why? Why trouble these hundreds of people for just one night? And this is what it's telling us. That although Mashiach is coming any minute, we have our job to do our mitzvah, our Torah to study. We have to do that with among us. We have to do it full-heartedly. We have to do it Show it to his wife. Um, email it to me. And we have to do it and prepare ourselves for Mashiach on a constant basis, but also constantly work in the Torah mitzvahs that we are now in our world. As we see by the Mishkan, that although it was for one day, although they could travel any second, they can continue their travel, but still in all, they had to construct and then they had to take apart. They had to do the full malacha. So we should merit that this Shabbos, Bahaleis the candles should be lit in the Mishkan, in the Beis Hamikdash Ashlishi, and we should construct it not for once, not for a one night deal, but Le'elam Void with Mashiach Tzidkenu in Yerushalayim, Bimheira Viyamenu. Shabbat Shalom to all.